Today we are in Luke. That shouldn't surprise you. But chapter 11 is the particular chapter we're in Luke. For those who haven't been with us, we're uh, working our way, uh, fast-forwarding through Luke, pausing uh, for meals and uh, looking and see what happens uh, in those particular meals. So today we're uh, the meal in chapter 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things which are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done, without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you that it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, help, uh, help me to proclaim your testimony with uh, simplicity this morning. Help me to know Christ and him crucified, that your people might know him more completely. Uh, demonstrate your power through the Spirit so that our faith will not rest on the wisdom of men, but rather on the power and testimony of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, the family and I were able to go to the Gaslight Theater, which, if we were uh, in John Newton's congregation, would uh, catch his ire. One of the things I disagree, apparently, with John Newton upon. Uh, and uh, after the show, they, you know, they have a bunch of music and 
one of the actors was portraying Jeff Foxworthy. And so there was a bunch of uh, you-might-be-a-redneck jokes that were going on. This inspired me this morning. If you think the only thing a Christian should smoke is pork, you might be a legalist. If you think women should only dye their hair to cover gray hair, you might be a legalist. If you doubt the salvation of someone who listens to K-Love, you might be a legalist. We could probably do the inverse of that as well. If you have a mental ruler for hemlines, you might be a legalist. If you think that large object crashed into your house because you didn't have your quiet time that day, you might be a legalist. If you correct everyone's grammar and spelling online, you might be a legalist. If you base the quality of a day on how many steps your Fitbit happens to count, you might be a legalist. And if you spend your time running down legalists, you might be a legalist. Legalism, uh, contrary to popular belief, is not something that is the, uh, the province only of conservative fundamentalist sorts of people. It's a human problem. And so whether you're left, right, moderate, doesn't matter, you likely struggle with this thing called legalism. It's part of the human condition that we continually measure other people by ourselves, and when they fall short, they are falling short. We fail to see the ways in which we fall short. Our particular ways of legalism are right, and other people's ways of legalism are wrong, measured by us. It's really into that kind of context that Jesus speaks uh, when he has lunch with the Pharisee. And to that, we must turn. Our big idea is that Jesus removes guilt that rituals and laws cannot. So we're going to focus first on two wrong ways of living and then the way that Jesus sets forth for us. First off, focusing on externals won't cleanse your heart. Jesus here was speaking to the crowds. He'd uh, he'd made some bold statements, and in the midst of all of this, uh, one of the Pharisees, who we're not sure if he had, what his motive was, but he asked Jesus over for lunch. And so to his house, Jesus goes and reclines at the table. Oftentimes, uh, there's something that happens that triggers a controversy when Jesus has meals, which is part of why we're looking through all of these things at Luke. But this time, the problem isn't what Jesus did or what someone else did. Instead, it's what Jesus didn't do. We see the testimony here that the Pharisee was astonished or marveled to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And now if you're a mom, I know that you've told your kids to wash their hands before dinner. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is not the the removal of dirt and germs through uh, soap and water. 
what is what is at play here is a ceremonial washing that Jesus, as a rabbi, uh, as a Jewish rabbi, would be expected to perform prior to sitting down for a meal. It was a ceremonial washing to remove, so to speak, the dirt of the world, the contamination, the uncleanness of the world prior to eating. What's interesting to me is that this word wash is... Baptizo, that word from which we get baptism, okay? We see it used this way in Hebrews 6.2 when it talks about baptisms or washings. It's referring to these ceremonial things, not what we typically think of as baptism, okay? These washings in the scriptures were directed to the priests, The priests, when they went to the tabernacle and then the temple, were supposed to go to the laver and wash their hands. But what had happened is that for the Pharisees, this had been extended beyond the priests and now was, for their perspective, a requirement for all people. What's interesting is that, again, it's not commanded in Scripture. It's a Pharisaical tradition. And if we want to uh, read about it, we can go to the Mishnah, and they've got a chapter on all the, on the different washings. And uh, for those of you who um, like that word baptizo, the, the Mishnah talks about pouring water. When you washed your hands, you did not dip your hands you poured a minimal amount of water upon your hands for the ceremonial cleaning. So uh, if you want the Mishnah reference, you can talk to me later, and I'll send it to you. But anyway, Jesus didn't do this. The Pharisee is marveling at this, not in a positive way, I imagine, but in a very negative way, and it's probably written on his face. And so Jesus sees this and begins to make comment upon this. Despite the Pharisees' concern with rituals which were outward, they were, in fact, by Jesus' assessment, full of greed and wickedness. They were like the person who only washes one side of the dish or one side of the cup. I would bring my coffee, my, my coffee, my tea mug here today and show it to you, but I cleaned it recently so it's not as filthy on the inside with all the residue from my tea. Okay? They're focused on things like shirts and clothes and hands, and they're not focused upon hearts. And so their hearts are full of greed and wickedness. And so Jesus calls them fools. Jesus is not the only one to say something like this. Paul picks up this similar uh, statement in a similar context in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Because they too were turning away from Christ, the Messiah, and were turning toward rituals for acceptance with God. You see, the purity of the Pharisees was only skin deep. And and Jesus, in the midst of the woes that he pronounces, kind of makes this a little more clear. Uh, It lays out some ways. They were tithing meticulously down to the herbs in their garden. One-tenth of the herbs goes to God. 
They were known for their piety. They were looked up to in the synagogue. They had the seats of honor. So please don't apply this to me because I'm on a platform. But that's essentially what it was. There was a raised platform in the front. And while they weren't the rabbi, they were up there looking important. And the problem wasn't that they were there. The problem was that they wanted to be there because they wanted the applause of men. It's about motive that Jesus is unveiling here. They were driven by pride. They were driven by greed. But they neglected, according to Jesus, the justice and love of God. And so they're very concerned about whether or not you washed your hands, but they are not concerned about whether you know, whether they acted in alignment with the justice of God and whether they were displaying the love of God to other people. They had gotten this completely mixed up. And so Jesus says that they are unmarked tombs. Tombs, of course, which would make a person unclean for a week. And so there is, in a sense, what Jesus is trying to communicate is that the Pharisees, despite their concern for ritual purity, in fact, were making other people ceremonially unclean. The exact opposite of what they thought they were doing. Legalism leaves us if we go a little bit earlier in the passage here, we talks about Jesus talks about how when a demon is cast out and the house is swept in an order, but if it finds the house empty, it will go and get more demons. And so there's a sense in which this is an application of that. Legalism leaves us swept and in good order externally, but actually vulnerable to greater evil because we personally are unchanged. Those rituals that we perform do not change our hearts. And all of this goes to really expose the, uh, the theology of the Pharisees, where they had everything backwards. It was do and then receive grace. And so they had to do, do, do. They gained and maintained their status before God by their works, by their rituals. And what's a bigger problem is that it reveals how they view God. That they they viewed God as stern and demanding, one whom they must appease before they receive love from Him. And this is the, the, the very lie that emerged in the Garden of Eden as the serpent was speaking to Eve. That did God really say part was caused to question not just the truthfulness of God, which it did, but also the goodness of God. Because here's this fruit that looks delightful to the eye, which apparently can give us knowledge that we lack. God's withholding something good from me, is what Eve started to think, led on by the serpent in that regard. And so this idea of God that started in the garden with the lies of the serpent continues within the heart of men and women 
and results in legalism. That, that God will not give me what is good and I must, in a sense, earn it the old-fashioned way. So there's a sense in which there's a question that this causes me to ask anyway. Are we focused on what we must do? Or are we focused on God's goodness and mercy and love? Or more right, maybe I should be a little more pointed. Are you focused on God's mercy and love? Or are you focused, do you live your life more with a Christian to-do list? Are you running around with, with termite-ridden walls and just putting on new paint and hoping no one sees the corruption that lies underneath that really good-looking paint? while the termites continue to do their work of destruction underneath that nice new paint. And so the external rituals don't perform uh, the heart change that is necessary for a sinful person. Secondarily, we see that studying the law will not cleanse our hearts. In addition to the Pharisee that had invited Jesus to lunch, there apparently was at least one scribe or lawyer. They were worried because they believed that Jesus' insult also applied to them. Now, it's interesting that he uses the term insult. I guess he was referring to you fools. He was somehow ignoring the woe, woe, woe part, a threefold woe that Jesus had pronounced upon the Pharisees. Um, that's how they would do that uh, good, better, best thing, superlative. So Jesus has just done a superlative sort of woe unto them, cursed them to the uttermost. And here is the scribe going, Are you ins- you're insulting us too, huh? No, Jesus was cursing you too. Jesus lays out an even longer threefold woe upon the professional class that was charged with interpreting the law. This is one of the distinctions between the Pharisees and the, the, the scribes. The Pharisees were a religious movement. It was a lay movement. The scribes were the professionals. Most of them were Pharisees, but not all of them. There were some scribes that were also uh, that were Sadducees as opposed to Pharisees, the, the liberal kind of guys. All right, the Pharisees being the more conservative in the way they interpreted it. Um, <clears throat> although both the Pharisees and many of the scribes did not rely upon the scriptures, but spoke. Um, through the Mishnah and everything else, as if that was equal to Scripture. In fact, there's one place in the the part of the the Mishnah called Sanhedrin that says that it's worse to break the rules of the traditions of the elders than it was the law of God. Okay? They've gotten this thing completely messed up. Let's look at this threefold condemnation for a moment. The first part is that they load people with burdens, but you yourselves do not touch the burdens. 
In fact, the, because of their work with the law, what they did is they want to explain the law, and uh, they essentially want to keep you from breaking the law. So they would add these man-made laws as a hedge or a guard against you getting close to breaking the law. And so they're multiplying law upon law. In the, fa- in the midst of that, they are also creating loopholes so they can sort of break the law too. For instance, there's only, there was only so far you could travel on a Sabbath day, right? Sabbath day's journey, you see it mentioned uh, in the New Testament. It was uh, not something you find in the Old Testament. It was actually something in the Mishnah, okay? So there were all of these laws about how you could carry something because you're not supposed to carry anything you know, on the Sabbath. So there were, there were laws about where you can carry things, like, you know, behind your ear, but not your hands, that kind of thing. But there was also this one loophole where you could give a personal possession of yours to a merchant or someone else who was traveling, and uh, they would leave it at strategic places so that it would extend out the, the distance of your house for the Sabbath day journey. So you could travel farther because that place where your comb is is now considered to be an extension of your house and now you can travel twice as far on the Lord's Day. It's like the IRS. It takes a, it takes a CPA to understand the tax code and to find all the loopholes to save you money. And that's sort of what's going on with the scribes. They're making these burdens. They're making religion to be incredibly burdensome with the multitude of laws that no one could keep. And so I thought, I'll bring my trusty old backpack. And you know, here's the laws of Moses. You know, here's the Mishnah. Whoops, this one's a really heavy one. I don't know why it's heavier than the other ones. Maybe it's the paper they use. But, you know, uh, here's the Talmud. Ah, oh, it's having a hard time fitting in there. And, you know, here's just some more fun rules. And this is what they did, essentially. This is the picture that Jesus has, is that they're putting these things in the backpack and loading people up with them. I'm sorry, Kittle. Now imagine trying to to hike up to Seven Falls with all of these books in your backpack. Unfortunately, I've seen kids at the Y coming in loading it loaded up with these humongous backpacks. I don't know how these poor little kids walk. Teachers do that. Sorry, teachers. Some teachers do that. Um, That's what the scribes were doing. They were loading these people up with all of these laws that they could not possibly keep. And so a system that kept them in guilt and condemnation all of the time. Because only people of leisure had time to make sure that they followed all of these ritual laws that the Pharisees kept talking about. This is quite contrary to the Gospel. For we see in places like Colossians 2, Paul addresses this just as he does in Galatians. But in Colossians, 
If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing, adding human teachings and precepts upon that which God had already given The second thing that he says about them is that they honor the prophets their fathers had killed. The implication here is that they still reject the message of the prophets. And it's seen by the fact that they're continuing to violate the message of the prophets. We read from Isaiah 58. And what does Isaiah 58, you know, accuse them of? Focusing on the rituals while avoiding the justice and love of God. Soon, they would kill the great prophet, Jesus. And the blood of all the prophets would be held against them in that generation. Thirdly, he says, you have taken away the key of knowledge. The scriptures were intended to teach the people. The the scriptures were intended to instruct them, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, in righteousness. But they have turned it into this confusing sort of thing. They have obscured the clarity of the Scriptures with all of their books and with all of their writings. It has become like the NFL, which can't define a catch. (laughs) They made the Scripture increasingly obscure. It became the domain of the professional class because they had the Bible code and no one else did. This is similar to what Rome did. By keeping the Scriptures in Latin, only generally the priests and only some of them could understand the Scriptures and teach the Scriptures. And so the prejudice, even in the modern era, has been against lay people studying the Scriptures. I was told, don't read the Bible, you'll get it wrong. Because it was the domain of the professional class. That's not what God intended. If you're going to be able to teach your children, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, we've talked about before, then you need to be able to understand it. And the Scripture is understandable until people like me ruin it for you. But they focused on right interpretation. In other words, they were very focused on loving God with the mind. But only the mind. And if they if they loved God with their minds, then God would love them. If they didn't love God with their mind, then God wouldn't love them. And so again, they're violating the principle of grace that was found even in the Old Testament. Because before the law was given in Exodus 20, we see the Lord who redeemed you from Egypt. The context of grace that was before law. The law, in fact, reveals sin to us, meaning it defines what sin is. The 
the law also reveals sin in us and that it provokes our sin and reveals that which we actually struggle with. And so the point of fact is that law doesn't help you deal with sin. It just reveals sin. And so it's amusing to me that in our culture, all we do is want to make more laws. Oh, there's another thing. Let's do more laws. Yesterday, as a family, we watched the movie Wonder. I think everyone in the family gave it a thumbs up or two. In some ways, I'm encouraged because a lot of schools are now requiring their students to read that book. Uh, One of the messages within that book is uh, anti-bullying, and yet I'm discouraged by the fact, and this illustrates my point, that bullying seems to be on the increase rather than the decrease. The mere reading of a book with a message against bullying will not remove bullying because of the fallenness of human nature. One way that this might sort of play out for people in our time is that if you have the right, if you belong to the right denomination, if you have the right theology, if that's, just, that's, that's what you think is necessary for salvation, uh, then, then you've sort of missed the point. There are a number of good denominations. And there is no theology exam. Aside from, is your faith in Christ? And him crucified? Or is it somewhere else? I say that as someone who loves theology. Not who's anti-theology. So looking to the law as an answer for your sin problem won't remove the sin from your heart. There it sits. And there it causes problems. So what's the solution? Jesus cleanses your heart so that you can obey freely. Uh, Jesus affirms in this controversy that the same one who made the outside made the inside. And it's easy for us to think about the potter. Well, you know, obviously the guy who made the outside of the cup is the same one who made the inside of the cup. But I believe Jesus is not speaking about cups and plates here. He's talking about human beings. God as our creator made us inside and out. And he wants us to be devoted to him inside and out. Not just as a show, but with integrity completely. And so Jesus says, Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything else is clean for you. And so some people who tend to view the inside and out as referring to the plates and the cups would say, give as alms the thing on your plate and the thing in your cup. And that really doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense of what's going on here. I can see the puzzled look on your face. Okay? It's about almsgiving beginning within and flowing out. Not concerned with how people view us, but but concerned because you love God and therefore are generous as God is generous. 
one of the people that I think of is Cornelius. We didn't mention his name, but we read from Acts chapter 11, and he's the Gentile that Peter went to go see. Cornelius was a Gentile who was a God-fearer, which means he had not undergone ritual circumcision. He was not yet a completed Jew. And yet, he acted like he was a real Jew. He gave from the heart. He's an example, and and that's in a sense why Peter is sent to him so that he might understand the reality that he was touching upon. That he might understand that that salvation is in Christ. It's most likely that he, like Abraham, believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But now that the fullness had come, it was time for Cornelius to know the fullness. And so even before Peter can really get his sermon cooking, the Spirit has fallen upon Cornelius and his household, and Peter doesn't know what in the world to do. But he does know that God had declared them clean, even though Peter's culture had said they were unclean. And that was the whole controversy in Acts 11. How can you go to the Gentile's house? How can you eat with him? Because the ritual laws of the Jews prohibited that. And now Peter had broken those rules. But he broke them because God's not concerned with those rules. If the inside is pure, our actions will be pure as well. True religion flows from the inside out. True religion happens when God removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. True religion takes place when He washes that heart with His Word and cleanses it from its idolatry. And so real giving in this context is from a heart that has been given over to justice and the love of God, not one that has been given over to the applause of men. We see this concept in Romans 12 where where Paul is then saying, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In a sense, because of everything I've said already, because of the, of Christ who is crucified, because of Christ who is your justification, meaning He is the one in whom you are accepted, because you have already received the mercy of God, therefore offer yourselves. Don't be confused and think you offer yourselves and then God accepts you. Know that God has accepted you in Jesus Christ and then offer yourselves freely to Him. That's what He's getting at. And so Jesus here in Luke 11 is in step with the prophets. Not just as we saw Isaiah 58, but also Micah 6. The context of what that famous passage, what does God require of you, O man, that you act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? He says, all of those sacrifices, nada. <laughs> Stop giving them. Because they're not from a heart that belongs to Him. It's not about checking the boxes. It's ultimately about belonging to Him. By faith. Christianity is Christ Himself purifying our hearts so that we can freely love Him and 
our neighbor. Sinclair Ferguson notes, lest we miss this, the benefits of the gospel are in Christ. They do not exist apart from Him. They are ours only in Him. You can't get the benefits without getting Jesus first. When you have Jesus, you get all the benefits. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from Christ. There is no gift of the Holy Spirit apart from Christ. There is no adoption as sons of God apart from Christ. There is no sanctification, no progress, no dying to sin and living to righteousness apart from Christ. But if you have Christ, you have all of those things and more. And so we receive this that I'm speaking of as we receive Christ by faith. There is both forgiveness and change if we are in Christ. Let us remember Jesus speaking in Matthew 11 that He said, Come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is light. He takes the backpack and He removes all of this stuff that the Pharisees and the scribes put there that didn't belong there. He, he removes the Mishnah and the Talmud and all of those things. So that now you can actually go hiking. Although there's nothing in it. So now you, why do you need it for go hiking? I'm not sure. There goes, there breaks down my illustration. I ruined it. I ruined it. But you understand. And so we, we come at this question of obedience as redeemed people, as restored people, as forgiven people, so that our obedience becomes not how we gain acceptance, but as an expression of our love for the, for Him who loved us first. And so seen in this light, the, the, the problem is not the law. The problem is how you view the law. Do you view the law as a ladder you must climb? Or is it guideposts to joy that mark the way? Christ crucified for us means that God is glorified in the joy that He guards as a good parent. So he says, when you go beyond the guideposts, life will be hard for you. I will still love you, but life will be hard for you. Years ago when I was 18, friends and I, this is how old I am, the drinking age in Vermont was 18. And so my friends and I wanted to go to Vermont to go to a bar. Now, doesn't that sound smart? <laughs> Let's drive an hour to an hour and a half in mildly inclement weather to go to a bar so that we can have a few drinks and then drive home. <laughs> this is why 18-year-old men should not be trusted with almost anything. 
And my mother said, no, you're not going. It's not that my mother was trying to steal my joy and my fun, but that my mother loved me and was trying to guard my joy by guarding my life. Because I was a fool. It's how you look at it. It's how you look at God. The joy stealer or the joy giver? He is the joy giver. He is the one who alone can cleanse us from sin, as we see in 1 John 1. So what do we do with all of this? Well, I think in the context of this passage, one of the things it calls us to do is to confess our greed and our evil. That we have hearts that need to be changed. And confessing that, we receive Christ who, whose blood can purify our hearts. And then we walk in that justice and love for God. We don't start with walking in the justice and love of God hoping that that will cleanse our hearts. That's the legalist way, not the gospel way, the Jesus way. Well, all of us in this room are tempted to manage our relationship with God. We're tempted to manage our sin with externals, with rituals, with focusing on the law. And what this does is reveals our view of God as cold, as hard, as distant and demanding. But the gospel reveals to us a God who is kind, who is good, who is merciful, that sent His Son to satisfy His wrath so that we are accepted in Him if we trust in Him. And so, Jesus alone can address the sin that remains in our hearts, the greed and the violence that's there. And Jesus alone can therefore produce the justice and love of God that we desperately need. So, are we relying on quick fixes, band-aids, a fresh coat of paint, Or are we relying upon the heart transplant that we really need? And the Jesus who continues to sustain us after that heart transplant. In the words of Steve Brown, you think about that. Let's pray. Father, how I wish it was a switch. But we tend to flip-flop back and forth at times. I confess that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, prone to return toward the temptation of self-righteousness and legalism. 
and then flop on over to antinomianism. Such wretched people are we that Christ and Christ alone can save us. And we thank you that he has put himself forward as the Savior of sinners, even the inconsistent sinners that we are. And we ask that you would um, continue to help us understand that, that we might grow in our trust, that we might become more stable, that we might be full of praise for the one who redeemed us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.